0: Welcome back to the early Way in podcast. Sorry for the late drop this week, I got stuck on vacation with the bad weather and everything. But if you guys haven't yet, make sure to like the video and throw a subscribe to the channel that helps us get out uh, more content for you guys and helps us grow a ton. We're coming off back to back profitable events and looking to continue into this week, which is UFC Vegas 19 Curtis razor blades versus Derek the black beast Lewis.
1: Yeah we've got a 15 fight card this week and happening in Vegas you can expect a few of those to drop off but as of right now a lot of tape study we had to do and a lot of research but I think we've got some really good fights set up for us this week. Um, I know last week our challenge kind of got messed up the right before the fight started. I forget who it was but.
0: The Gillian Robertson and Miranda Maverick.
1: Yeah and Gillian passed out backstage and I don't know. So, that fight got canceled. I think this week we've settled on Rafael Alves versus Pat Sabatini mm-hmm. uh, for our challenge of the week. I'm going to be taking Alves and Pete got Sabatini. Yep. So, excited to uh start that back up. Sir, so we're going to start off the fight card with the Polar Bear Sergey Spivak and the Mountain Jared Vandera. Sergey Spivak, you know, as we've seen on on Instagram, he looks pretty good right now. He looks big. Mm-hmm. He's been training with Francis Ngannou. And what we know about Spivak's game is if he can establish that grappling game of his, he will dominate you. I mean, he's shown that, especially in the Taito Ivasa fights, the first one that comes to mind. Right. Um, anytime he wanted to take you to the ground, he got it. And, you know, we've seen in a couple of Sergey Spivak's fights, where he just looked a little bit undersized, which you know the I, the Instagram pictures of him training with Francis Ngannou, that makes me feel good. It looks like he put on that weight because we did see in like the uh, Walt Harris, the uh, Marcin Tibura fight, just not big enough to get that ground game established and really just get pushed up against the cage by the much bigger man uh, marcin Tibera, Tibera. In that first round, got three minutes of control time, in the second round, two minutes, and in the third round, two minutes. Um, those, you just can't give that type of time uh, up against in a heavyweight matchup. Uh, and then Jared Vandera, you know, he's a two-to-one dog coming into this. And I, I will admit that he hasn't really shown anything um, on the regional scene to me that would justify him being UFC caliber. Um, the only thing that worries me is that him being six foot four with an 80 inch reach, he is that, that big heavyweight that we've seen Sergey Spivak have problems with in the past. And uh, it, it really does worry me. You know, I think that Spivak could uh, absolutely go out there and show that he's the, I forget what he's sitting at right now, but like minus two sixty five 65 favorite. Um, but Vandera, if he does, if he is able to stuff a takedown, I really could see that size being a problem as the, as the fight goes on. And we've seen Spivak, Um, you know make some make some improvements standing up Uh, and Vandera isn't is is definitely hittable but he's shown a good chin so the the longer the fight goes on I could see Spivak gassing especially with Vandera's weight kind of you know wearing on him as the fight goes on.
0: Yeah man this one uh, originally scheduled for
1: 256 and
0: it's uh, been rebooked due to Vandera testing positive. Going into it I know we are both pretty high on Spivak, you know, and kind of wanting to bet him. But after tape study, I think we're probably going to lay off of here, man. Uh, He is 2-2 and in his UFC run so far. Those two losses you talked about, two ranked, you know, heavyweights in Marcin Tibera and Walt Harris. So definitely fought, you know, way better competition than you've seen Jared Vandera fight. Sergey is very young, man, at 26. He's got a ton of time to improve. He works that jab well. um, And I think he's going to be much, much better on the feet. Um, compared to jared bandera but like you said man he's he's kind of a novice off his back he really has a hard time getting back to his feet um, and bandera is a massive massive heavyweight coming off his win over the contender series i mean you know i don't think he got a finish on there to be honest with you uh and he didn't really look that great to me but Dane always needs heavyweights that's why he's got signed and in his uh in his interview there he called out sergey spivak so ask and you shall receive you know uh, maybe he sees something you know in his game much like
1: definitely the not the person I would be choosing out of the heavyweight lineup to be not, facing at all, man.
0: not at all but like I said maybe he watched the Tibera fight or something and sees where he might be able to overpower him with this size and in the small octagon I think Jared might have success with that he is a brown belt on the mat compared to the blue belt of uh, Sergey Spivak something he did to note there because man Jared might have the advantage on the mat here one thing I do want to note is you know Sergey Spivak has a little hype, but you look at the three guys that he beat before getting into the UFC, and they're all above 40 years old. One of them being Tony Lopez, which he absolutely, you know, ran through in the first round, but that's the guy Vandera beat to get on the contender series, but Vandera couldn't get the finish over him either, so Vandera kind of, man... Not UFC competition or UFC level to me either. He's lost all three of his bouts in LFA, which is you know, a regional promotion that I'm pretty high up on. So I think he does lose that step up in competition when he takes it. Um, but, man, I'm not confident enough to lay the minus 230, minus 240 on Spivak here.
1: No, I just can't do it. I liken uh, Vandera to Ben Rothwell as somebody who just really relies on his uh, size in the octagon to implement his type of game plan. Absolutely, man. Our second fight of
0: the night takes place in our Bantamweight division between Ayman Zahabi, who's seven and two, taking on Draco Rodriguez, who is seven and one. Another fight that was scheduled back in December, Zahabi tested positive um, for COVID. I'm glad they kept this one together. Zahabi, I'm sure you recognize that last name. Younger brother there, the longtime coach, for us, Zahabi of GSP. He does train, of course, out of TriStar there with his brother. Man, you know, Zahabi is coming off back-to-back losses, a pretty big layoff. He's already 33. I don't know what kind of improvement you're really going to see at this point in this guy's career. He's a pretty decent, I guess you could say, striker and grappler. Doesn't really, you know, show you or shock you really anywhere though. He does have pretty good volume, um, but man, this guy, uh, I wouldn't say maybe rushed is the word for the UFC to the UFC because of his last name. But he only fought one guy before getting to the UFC with a winning record. So, the, you know, the resume is very, very padded. And I don't really think this guy has, you know, the cardio that I like to see, especially in a Bantamweight fighter. Moving over in Draco Rodriguez, you know, he got his contract on the Contender Series just a couple months ago. He has a 13-fight amateur career to go along with the eight pro fights. So it's something you like to see. You know, he's very uh, experienced for 24 years old. He doesn't typically need it, but, he, you know, he did b- get scheduled and go five rounds with Tony Gravely. So I, I do probably lean to him to have that cardio advantage, especially being a 24, much younger, more athletic. I think he's got the better boxing and, you know, the better leg kicks. I'm not normally the type to, you know, want to lay the price on a debut at like a minus 160, minus 170. And I know there's not a lot of, you know, fights out there to look for, but I think this is a good spot for Draco, man. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I'm just not convinced on Rodriguez. You know, I had some difficulties trying to find tape study on Rodriguez or at least enough for me to formulate an honest opinion on him. And um, you know, from what I could tell, he's he's powerful. You know, I, I noticed that he is willing to eat a couple of shots if he sees an opening to deliver some of his power, um, and that is something that that put me on notice um, definitely. But it it just wasn't enough for me to want to back him. You know, you touched on his amateur career, and that that is comforting to know. But Zahabi training at a TriStar. I know he has um, a great team around him and you're right at 33 years old, he might not be putting together much more in his game, but I really haven't seen many holes in his game. You know, it's not, like you said, it's not like Zahabi's impressed me um, with any of his performances, but in my opinion, I think he was winning that Ramos fight. You know, he was at least com- keeping it competitive on the feet until he got knocked out. And, uh, and the Reginaldo Vieira, that was his first big test in the UFC, and he was able to come out on top in that one. Um, really, it's that Morales fight where it's, it's just impossible to look past it. You know, Morales isn't in the UFC anymore, and, um, you know, Zahabi just, kind of fell victim to just uh staring at at the movement of Morales, you know he had low output in that fight um was getting touched up on the feet, and it was really not something that you'd like to see. I think he kind of fell in love with the striking game after he found success in that Ramos fight and uh paid for it in the vince Morales fight mm-hmm. so uh with with Draco, you know i've seen him off his back a couple of times, and he has um pulled off a couple of submissions off his back, and, and that was impressive as well. But at only 24 years old, um, I think that there's value on Zahabi, actually. And this is one that we aren't necessarily disagreeing on because I can't. It, it's hard for me to, to give you a, a pick for this one. I think I'm going to lean Zahabi strictly on experience and from the uh, UFC experience that he's had up until this point. Um, nothing impresses me about Zahabi, though, so I won't financially be backing him at all.
0: Yeah, more than likely probably won't see a play from either one of us, uh, especially for the podcast on this one. I do uh, lean toward Draco, and I think, uh, you know, if Zahabi's going to get this done, I think he's probably going to catch some type of submission over Draco. We saw Draco almost get armbarred in his uh, his win on the contender series and stuff. I see Zahabi probably getting some type of submission that he pulls off his back or something if he is going to beat Draco. I know the under two and a half is sitting at like plus 167, plus 175, somewhere around that. Um, I think a finish is likely to happen between these two guys in the small octagon as well. So some uh, some bets to keep an eye on, but this is a tough fight to call, and we'll probably lay off of it for the podcast.
1: Yeah, I agree. Moving on, we go to the 145 pound division where we see Chaz Skelly facing Jamal Pretty Boy Emers. Chaz Skelly coming off that year and a half layoff, and at 35 years old, you know that's pretty concerning for me. Um, he's he's a hard nosed wrestler who's been somewhat successful in the UFC. Uh, his run up to this point, he's gone seven three and one. Of those seven victories, though, only one of his one of those people are still within the UFC organization, and that's Jordan Griffin, who's gone one and three in the UFC. So, um, those wins really haven't panned out to be anything of worth noteworthy at all for Skelly. Um, as I watched Skelly's tape, you know, I wasn't impressed with his striking at all. Um, his striking, it seemed to be pre-drilled uh, combinations, especially the one-two that he's throwing regardless of how, of what you'll be throwing. He's throwing it, uh, not planning on, on countering or uh, making reads to how your your attack is, but just throwing it to throw it and then looking to implement that wrestling heavy attack. Um, and that's not something I'm, I'm thinking he's going to have any success with with Jamal Lemmers. I think Jamal Emmers has a really underrated wrestling game and he seems to have the advantage just about everywhere, everywhere. Um, He, he kind of, you know, exudes that confidence whenever he's in the octagon, keeps his hands low has that extreme athleticism and explosive striking. And uh, I I don't do this often, but I will be making a, uh, a pick for how this fight finishes. I could see Emmers landing a flying knee, almost exactly how uh, the Frankie Edgar Corey Sandhagen fight went. Um, I think that he's just a little bit too much. Um, they're not, they're not really cut from the same cloth, you know, Skelly at 35 years old, just doesn't move anywhere close to Emmer's, Um, and I think that ring rust off that, off that layoff is really going to cost him.
0: Yeah, man, I, I'm right there with you on, uh, thinking Jamal Emmer's is probably going to take this one, but Chas Skelly is, uh, he's one of the more entertaining fighters that, uh, on the entire roster there. He's a fun guy to watch. I mean, if you don't know yet, uh, don't buy a PS4 or a PS5 from his Twitter. Uh, that's a hack and a scam. So help him get that Twitter account back, guys. Man, you touched on it. 35 years old. The layoff. Um, the James Lynch interview. He talks about having so, uh, the shoulder surgery. Um, and in the past three years total, man, he's only had two fights. He is as tough as nails. He's made the move to Sanford MMA, which you know has had a ton of success lately. Um, but he's he's really become that like sub or bust type of fighter. You know, if he if he can't get you on the mat and get you down, it, it really doesn't end well for him on the feet. And even on the mat, we've seen guys, you know, beat him, submit him, Jason Knight finish him with ground and pound. Um I would out. say
1: Bobby Moffat finished yeah, him he too. It got him. overturned, yeah, but
0: it did. you're right. It did get it overturned. Seconds but away. Uh, I mean, uh, the ref thought it would stop. I know Skelly was, you know, what a uh, what is it? Uh, protesting it immediately, but uh, it was locked in, man. And in a couple more seconds, he was done for.
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: On Jamal Emmer's side, that's a guy that's been on the UFC's roster, man, for quite some time. He's 31 years old, um, already over 23 fights. This guy has fought Tiago Moises at 155 pounds before. He's beaten Nate Diaz, his boy, and Chris Avila, Jay Cuccinello Cucine- from the Ultimate Fighter. And, you know, even at 145, this guy's beaten Corey Sandhagen. He did have the setback to a guy later on in the card there and Julian Arosto on the contender series with a big upset. But Embers is a guy that probably should have been in the UFC a lot earlier than he is now. It's a phenomenal striker, like you said, man. He knows how to keep his range well. And he's going to be, um, like you said, when it comes to athleticism and speed, it's cut from another cloth compared to Skelly. I know you uh, are begging me to play that inside the distance uh, for Jamal Emmers it's something we'll have to take a look at because it definitely is sitting in nice odds, but we are definitely going to find somewhere that we can parlay Jamal Emers across this card because he's uh, one of our more confident picks throughout the night.
1: Yeah, I love that. Uh, even the first round uh, TKO by Emers is plus 700 right now, and that's something I'll, I'll be making a personal degenerate play on for sure. Absolutely, bro.
0: Our next fight takes place in our women's flyweight division between Shayna Dobson, who's four and four, and Casey O'Neill, who was five and zero, oh. Shayna Dobson is coming off the upset of the year in twenty twenty as she uh, was a plus nine fifty dog when she beat Maria Agapova. But let's be honest, man, Maria Agapova she pulled some type of uh, Michelle Pereira stunt where she's dancing to the ring and absolutely burned herself out before you know before she even started the fight. She um, Shayna Dobson needed that win, um, you know, more than ever. And she had lost that previous that previous three before that. Looking to get on, um, you know, a little bit of a hot streak here. She's made her move to team elevation where she's, you know, looked great. She's shown a good gas tank. And she is really strong and athletic uh, compared to a lot of these other females. Her record, you know, at four and four, it's not great. But she is a case of, you know, a girl being rushed to the UFC. She Second pro fight, she's fighting girls like Nico Montano. And her fourth pro fight, she's in ultimate fighter house fighting Roxanne Modaffari. You know, so four and four, you know, she's fought some great girls, but there's something to note in Chana Dobson is she's never won back-to-back fights ever. And she is coming off a win, taking on a girl in Casey O'Neill who's making her UFC debut at five and Oh, seven amateur fights to go as well with that. She does train at a tiger Moy Thai, but I did see the James Lynch interview that I watched um, where she's actually not there due to whole COVID and everything. Um, uh, why other fighters he said like Peter Yan and stuff have had to go to American top team and stuff um, because Tiger Muay Thai has been I guess closed down but with Casey O'Neill, she reminds me a little bit of like uh, like Macy Barber man she's got that mean streak to her she almost likes to hurt girls you know um, it is hard for me to lay the price tag on a debutante like that um, and especially in one who is only five and O who has a relatively weak level of competition. Um, but you did some digging and found out why that is.
1: Yeah. Word around town is that up until this point, every single fight that she has on a record has been set up by her dad, who is actually the promoter of the fight organization she's been in uh, that you really got to call into question that, that yeah. uh, record. And even though Shannon Dobson's four and four, I'd much rather see her at least fighting the level of competition that she has than, Uh, just getting tomato cans and coming in as a debut fighter um, being a favorite. You know, we've seen that quite a few times, especially in women's MMA um, where there's a lot of hype surrounding a debut fighter and they just don't pan out the way because they just haven't seen that level of competition just because there's such a big gap between UFC caliber women's and regional level women's MMA. Um, Dobson, like you said, that, that kind of, the upset win over Agapova Blue or wad and Dobson, uh, did what she had to do. I think Maria Agapova is going to have similar success in the first round with anybody like she did with Dobson just because she is such a big, powerful woman. Um, and like you said with Casey O'Neill, she does have that aggressive style to her. And I think that um, that might be something that Dobson's going to have to endure, especially early once again. Casey O'Neill, she's one of those fighters that um, can become really predictable with her striking. She doesn't really throw many combinations. And um, I've seen in quite a few of her fights, uh, pe- girls timing takedowns off of her singular uh, straight right or her jab that she pumps out there. Um, that being said, she does a really good job at creating scrambles whenever she is getting, whenever she does get taken down, and uh, usually winds up on top in some type of submission. So uh, the jiu is there to back up the crappy takedown defense. So that's that's nice. Um, Shayna Dobson, though, with the experience level, I am looking to. I'm gonna lay off this fight probably, but if I start winning and I wanna make a live bet, uh, the Shayna Dobson by decision sitting at plus two fifty-five is probably where I lean for this fight to go.
0: Yeah, I'm uh I'm probably gonna stay away myself. I do lean toward the Casey O'Neill side as, you know, other than who she's fault, there's not much that impresses me with Shayna Dobson. Um, you know, she got put out by Priscilla Cochera in the first round with strikes in um, Casey O'Neill training at the Tiger Muay Thai I think she does have the ability to to touch Shayna Dobson and and put her away but you know Dobson Dobson's a dog man and, and she's going to be there for three rounds as far as a uh, podcast I highly doubt you see a, a see a play this isn't a this is a tricky fight right here man and I think you know we've seen it as the public has been all over Shayna Dobson as she opened up as a big dog and you know, after her previous upset, the public's, the public's wanting in on that. So it's, it's definitely getting down to a pick them where I think it should most definitely be.
1: Yeah. Uh, one other thing to note about Dobson is she really does have the frame at 125 pounds to really be physically imposing. I know I just talked about Akapova kind of bullying her in that first round, um, but Dobson is kind of similar to Sajari Banks where, um, maybe not the most technical fighter but they do have the raw talent and uh, athleticism that can really go a long way in women's MMA
0: for sure one last thing i wanted to notice you know seeing girls at 5 and 0 a lot you know a lot of them have to go through invicta or even the contender series something like that before they get their shot and this girl is getting a shot right here so the ufc might see something in her that you know we just don't see and this could be punishment for beating their little gym in agapova you know
1: Mm-hmm. yeah it definitely could be but at the same time casey o'neill's been fighting in her backyard so we, we might could see Shayna dobson come out here and uh, maybe get above a 500 record
0: we absolutely could man this is too uh, too close of a fight for us to call
1: mm-hmm. we now go on to the 145 pound division where we see rafael Alves, who's 19 and 9 take on pat sabatini who's 13 and 3 Rafael Alves, he's making his UFC debut coming off that contender series, win over Alejandro Flores, um, he guillotined him, you know, something to note about Alves is athletic wise. He is a, uh, he, he looks phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of fights that I were, where I was able to watch, he started it, uh, with like flying, flying kicks, um, uh, spinning wheel kicks, uh, switch kicks. He's just extremely athletic and, uh, I think that, you know, as far as his build, he reminds me of, uh, you know, like a small man, what I'm trying to think of somebody, uh, Johnny Walker, I guess is somebody who's just extremely athletic and you don't really know what he's going to throw. Where Sabatini, man, after watching tape study, he looked really fluid. He was able to uh, transition from his strikes to his takedowns uh, really well. And, you know, set up his set up his takedowns way better than a lot of you uh, Uf- a lot of people who are outside of the UFC normally would um, I know he's the cage fury 145 pound champion um, so I know that he has that experience of facing those upper echelon guys even though the records might not show it they've earned their position in the cage fury oct- or in the cage fury cage so um i do think that he's seen a, a high level of talent I, I lean towards Alves here strictly because i think that he's more well-rounded he has seven wins by ko and seven wins by submission i think that he kind of uh, will outclass sabatini here although i know i've seen a lot of people on mma twitter on the sabatini train yeah man this is a real tough fight to
0: call both these guys are um you know have found their groove as of late alvez on a five fight win streak uh previous titan fc champion there and he's making his UFC debut off of that second-round finish on the Contender Series. He trains down at MMA Masters with guys like Colby Covington, Miguel Baeza, you know, uh, a gym that's really started to come to fruition as of late. One thing to note about Alves, though, is his last four fights have been at 55 or even one at 160. So this guy has not fought at featherweight since 2014. Um, something to note is I feel like he's going to – he's going to have to use a lot of energy in here in this octagon facing a wrestler like Pat Sabatini. Uh, You know what you get with Pat, man. It it is a hard-nosed wrestler who is going to make you defend takedowns at a very high rate. He has won five of his last six with four finishes and you talked about the cage fury uh, featherweight champ. He's a two-time champ there and a former D1 wrestler with the jujitsu black belt has nine wins by submission himself. So more of a, uh, you know, one-dimensional fighter there compared to Alves, who, like you said, is, is a very well-rounded guy, fighter with the seven wins by sub, another couple by TKO. He's got great forward pressure, man. He walks you down, and he really wants to land um, that big right hand of his. Where he, he has a nice high kick that he throws too. But uh, he's a little heavy on that lead leg, man, and um, he eats a little bit of jabs himself. And I think being so heavy on those legs, it's going to be a little uh, easy for Pat to get in there on him and avoid some of those takedowns this is the challenge that we are going to go with for tonight so I'm going to lean toward the dog and Pat Sabatini here I don't necessarily think he should be the plus 150 plus 170 dog here I understand maybe as a slight dog but um, at these odds man I I feel like I got to play him I think you just got to got to be careful of the traditional wrestling entries in the guillotine of Alves
1: yeah I would be lying if I was if I said I wasn't worried about Sabatini's wrestling you know and Alves' tape study, whenever he fought Felipe Douglas, I noticed that he accepted being on his back uh, for the first round in that fight and then got pressed up against the cage in that second round before getting that knockout. Uh, definitely something I'm worried about with Sabatini's pressure, but I could see Alves making Sabatini hesitant, especially early on because of the power that Alves uh, you know, has, has in his hands. It'll be something that Sabatini will have to figure out how to uh, you know, close that distance without getting knocked out.
0: Absolutely, man. One of a few that we disagree on the night, but uh, a lot of tough fights to call this week with guys making their UFC, uh, you know, debuts and, uh, you know, feeling like we're getting a good lean on quite a few here, man. Yeah. We stay in our men's featherweight division with a fight between Julian Arosa, who was 24 and eight and Nate Landwehr, who was 14 and three. And man, this is going to be one of the best fights throughout the whole card. Both of these guys as tough as they come and always come to put on a show. This is, uh, you know, the second or third UFC stint there for Julian who has been very, very inconsistent throughout his career, uh, was on the ultimate fighter, then went one and one in the UFC before getting cut fights his way back to get a shot on the contender series where he upset Jamal Emers there, um, but then goes zero and three getting finished in majority of those fights to get cut yet again from the UFC Um, But then back in June, gets a short notice opportunity yet again and uh, makes work of Sean Woodson in the third round, making uh, two of his last three wins at a plus 350 or better uh, underdog upset there. You can never count Julian Arosa out. He has um, a massive frame for featherweight. Um, You know, it's hard to see how this guy makes 145 pounds and I think it's a little, you know, evident that he has to cut a lot of weight because this guy has been finished on the feet four times. He doesn't really have, you know, a good chin. Reminds you of James Vick up at lightweight a little bit. Um, on the other side of Nate Landwehr, that's our boy from Clarksville. He is one and one in the UFC, and he's coming off, a, you know, a hell of a fight with Darren Elkins. He opened as the 160, and currently this fight is, you know, getting close down to a pick em. So I, I really hope we can support our Clarksville boy there. He's got the wrestling to fall back on and fought great competition at M1. These guys were sixteen and four, eight and seven, and ten and one before getting into the UFC. He's fighting excellent competition. I think we haven't seen you know the best Nate Landwehr yet. The one knock on this guy is he's very very hittable. But if there's one guy that's more hittable than Nate Landwehr, it might be Julian Arosa.
1: Hmm. Uh, him or Darren Elkins, and right? that uh, <laughs> gave us a, a wonderful fight in his last time out. Um, Nate Landwehr, it's got to be a breath of fresh air Facing somebody like Julian Arosa After being matched up with Mofsar Evluov Yeah <laughs> Completely counted out in that fight To becoming, like you said, a, a pick here. here uh, Nate Landwehr, you know, we've seen two different showings of him in the UFC One where he gets, you know, the hellacious KO from Burns With the, with the knee up the middle And then the fight of the night with Elkins We know that Landwehr is going to kill or be killed out there And that's something that I really like um, when i 'm supporting a fighter, especially the fact that he 's a local boy, it really makes us hi- hype to just back him, just getting the opportunity to back somebody local we haven 't had that option recently. I, I forget um, who it was that just fought out of Clarksville Jacob Kilburn Jacob Kilburn, thank you very much yes, Jacob Kilburn where it was uh, one of those guys where we just we just can 't back him and finally we 're in a position where we can Julian Arroza. You noted on his chin, man, he's been touched plenty of times, and uh, that's not something that you want with somebody like like Nate Landwehr who will stand in the pocket and trade with you. Um, Julian Arosa, extremely long for the division and throws from really unique angles. I kind of compared him to Dan Hooker, where you can tell that the length of his arms almost forces unique angles when when he throws. And then he utilizes his footwork almost like Dominic Cruz in his entries and how he – uh, you know stays in his striking range. Arosa tape study it's it's impressive. I think that I think that his fight style is is really fun to watch. I just don't think um that going up against somebody with Nate like Nate Landwehr who can take that punishment and then also has the wrestling background to fall back on in case it does go to the mat. I think Nate Nate Landwehr has a much more solid base and I feel more uh more comfortable backing him especially um that he opened as the as the favorite here.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm i on Nate Landwehr as well. I know we've already released a play via Twitter for you guys back in Nate Landwehr and we talked about it earlier the under two and a half is at even money in this one and you know I could see a finish in this one as well.
1: Yeah I kind of like the fact that we can bait Net, or bet Nate Landwehr straight here and then almost hedge it on the under two and a half because these guys are throwing down and um, I got to imagine the only reason why the under under two and a half is that even money is because of how tough Nate Landwehr is. And maybe they're thinking that because of that toughness, we could see the judges.
0: Absolutely. It's called Nate to train for a reason, man. He uh, he puts a pace on guys and he has a pop in his punches. Uh, I actually like Nate to get a finish here on Saturday. And like you said, glad we do get a chance to back our boy from
1: Clarksville. 100%. Moving on, we go to the men's 135-pound division where we see Eddie Wineland, who's 24-14-1, take on the sexy Mexi John Castaneda, who's 17-5. Castaneda, he went on an 11-fight win streak from 2015 to 2017 and then suffered a loss and is now only fighting about once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, in his last four, he's 1-3. And, and at this point in his career, I'm really, you know, worried where he is mentally, you know? Um, facing those big losses uh, especially at a point in time where he should be kind of developing his game developing his game to where uh, he meets his potential at 29 years old you're right at that athletic uh, MMA prime and it just isn't panning out for him and then moving over to Eddie Wineland at 36 years old a lot of people are counting him out but I really do think that a lot of people have formulated their entire opinion on Wineland by his fight with O'Malley. And to be real with you, even though I don't like O'Malley, O'Malley is an anomaly in that division. You know, I'm telling you, right. I'll be the first to tell you John Castaneda at five foot six, isn't going to be able to do what Sean O'Malley at five foot 11 was able to do in the striking realm. Um, Eddie Wineland, you know, I'll admit that he has glaring holes in his game, but he's more than made up for it with the power. You know, I was watching one of his one of his fights, and I believe it was DC that was talking about his ability to deadlift 400 pounds. Um, it's evident in his power. And at six and eight in his UFC career, um, no wonder why he's still on the roster. It's because he can deliver that knockout shot at any time. Yeah, man, this one's a fun one. And Castaneda is one that we've seen,
0: you know, A lot of people be on, and it's actually reversed these odds as Eddie Wineland opened as the minus 150 favorite, and Castaneda is now about the minus 130. Wineland, he's lost three of his last four fights as well, Um, and at 36, one of the lone uh, WEC guys we have left. I see a pink slip maybe coming his way, man, if he doesn't get this one done. But he's also in a good spot to get this one done. It's one of his easiest opponents to date. I compare him to that of, you know, maybe Gregory Popov. And, you know, we saw what Eddie Wineland did to when he was able to take a step down in competition. You talk about the yearly appearance of Case and, you know, Eddie Wineland's in the same boat. This guy's fought one time in 17, one time in 18, one time in 19, and just one time in 2020. So really as inconsistent as inactive as it gets there. He's also one of those, like, really one-dimensional fighters, man. He is um, just a straight boxing-heavy approach. Keeps the hands at the hips, much like Bobby Green. Invites, you know, opponents to brawl on him, able to try to counter him. And that low volume, it's really easy to beat over the scorecards. And that's something I think, you know, if Castaneda wins, it's definitely on the scorecards. I don't see him being, like you said, the one like O'Malley to come out here and, and put Eddie Wineland away. But, you know, at 36, coming off a bad knockout like that against O'Malley, you know, who knows what kind of shape and stuff, you know, the chin and everything's going to be in for Wineland there. As Castaneda does have power and he does like to walk you down and land his uh, hard leg kicks. And one thing that I like about Castaneda is he throws in combinations unlike Eddie Weinland, Eddie Wineland does look for that home run shot where you'll see Castaneda throw, you know, one, two, three punch combos at you there. It's a tricky one, man. And at, at minus 150, I almost want to play Eddie Wineland at dog odds. Um, I do think that he's getting one of his most easier to opponents to date. And Kastanata losing three of his last four or two doesn't really impress me and definitely not enough to bet him at a plus or minus 130 here.
1: Yeah, you almost just want to keep the odds makers honest with the Eddie Wineland pick. Um, Eddie Wineland, when he's fighting, he almost fights with his chest puffed out and he kind of invites you to throw those shots. And Castaneda is going to be the faster guy, so I, I really do think uh, that we'll figure out relatively early on whether or not this is going to be a good night for Eddie Wineland. Um, if the speed of Castaneda seems to be too much for him, uh, I, I could see Castaneda pulling this out. But I do think if Eddie Wineland has success, just touching him a little bit in the first round, eventually he'll find that timing and land it on Castaneda. Um, to possibly do the, the Wineland by TKO at plus 535, that's something that we – um, you know, we've talked about and we'll mm-hmm. probably look to play. If not, we'll probably just lay off this fight completely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you, man. Uh, you know, Eddie Weinland isn't winning this fight by decision. It's by TKO. If we can get it a- above 500 like that, uh probably look at a little play because I uh on the other side, I can't justify us betting Castanata at a minus one thirty now.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: Our next fight is an exciting lightweight bout between Dracar Close, who is eleven two and one taking on Luis Pena, who is eight and three. Dracar Close is coming off a year layoff after that exciting fight with, uh, Benel Dirouche there, um, where, you know, got his light shut out for the first time, but, you know, was winning that fight up until the point where he just wasn't anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, he is one of this, this is one of these fights here, man on the card that are, are tough for me to call. Um, Drycar Close, he has beaten, you know, uh, really unorthodox uh, strikers before and Lando Venata, Bobby Green, Dai Casey. So Luis Peña, not really something new to him in terms of striking. Drycar Close has great Muay Thai. He swings that right hand heavy, man. He's got a good inside leg kick. But he's only a purple belt in jujitsu jitsu and we've seen him have trouble on the mat. We've seen guys like Benil Dairouche, uh, you know, have his back for almost the entire first round. Um, we saw Christos Giagos take his back as well. And that's something I think Pena will have a lot of success with. Pena has um, a lot of wrestling roots to fall back on, and he's great at jiu-jitsu and great at getting the back. Pena trains out of a lot of different gyms, man. At only 27 years old, he is a, r- a real student of the game. You saw him go to AKA after his season with Tough with Daniel Cormier. You see him go back to Westside MMA with Bryce, where he's from in Arkansas, and now spending a lot of time at American Top Team. That's what I like to see in a 27-year-old man. He's really getting uh, work in with a lot of really good guys. He is taking this fight on short notice, replacing Jai Herbert. And, you know, I definitely think he is um, a better lightweight than he is featherweight at 6'3". He's still got a huge frame for the lightweight division. And, you know, that does give up, you know, the ability to defend some of the takedowns sometimes. But uh, not really probably going to have that issue with your car close. I see this probably staying on the feet and,
1: being a fun war, man. What do you think? Yeah, so that 6'3 frame, Pina will have that size height advantage over everyone at 155. One thing I noted about him is he works best um, in an open cage where he can use his length and that footwork to kind of keep the fight at his range. Um, as we saw in the mat for Vola fight, though, Pina does have problems with dealing with that wrestling pressure, uh, wrestling and that pressure up against the cage. And that's something that Dracar Close does really, really well. Um, as I noted, you know, physically, Close will be the shorter and stronger fighter in there. So I could uh, look for Close to do exactly what he did against uh, Devin Powell by kind of, you know, Powell's a six foot one fighter and really the only guy uh, on his resume that resembles Pena in the slightest. And Close was able to just kind of push him up against the cage and use his strength to uh, wear on him and eventually win that fight dominating in a decision. I I think that Close has fought the better competition, and I think that he could also find some real success on the taller fighter in Pena using those low calf kicks and trying to chop away um, at Pena's legs. Um, And then, you know, that being said, I I do think Drakkar Close could be in some trouble in the stand-up game with Pena being as long as he is, and it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that Close has the uh, wrestling to fall back on if he does start to lose in those exchanges where Pena um, he doesn't set up his shots very well and uh, as we saw in the Worthy fight just a lazy takedown attempt which ultimately got him submitted. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah man he was absolutely just overpowered in that comma Worthy fight as well and that's something that you're going to have with that 6-3 frame is that lack of strength and mm-hmm. I could see your car close like you said putting him up against the fence and Maybe making a little boring. Dracar Close um, has seen the judges' scorecards nine of his last ten fights, with the Benil dirouche loss being that you know that asterisk there. There's plus money for Close by decision right now, and you know I absolutely see that being the way that Close gets this done. He has fought the better competition, man. But um, I think the the more this line creeps up, I think there's value on Luis Pena. He's got a good left hand and a good left high kick. Dracar Close. uh it almost reminds me of Aldo and that uh, Conor McGregor fight, man. He is itching to land that right hand on you. And it's um, it keeps it a, lot, a little low sometimes. And I think Pena is going to have success with his left hand as well. And I actually think, uh, you know, Luis Pena will have the wrestling advantage in this one um, being 6'3 versus 5'9. I think that length and everything um, and the wrestling roots from the college, you know, the collegiate wrestling of Pena. I, I think Pena is actually going to be um, the one to have success on the mat here. Um, and one we disagree on. So um, if you want to put a challenge on this one as well, that would be fine.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, I'd I'd love to put a challenge on this one. Like I said, I think Pena, it's just it's impossible for me to want to back somebody whose biggest twin in the octagon is to Matt Wyman and Dracar Close. You know, he is coming off that uh, the loss to Benil where he was a little bit. Uh, riskier in his way of winning. And I think that he's going to get back to his roots here and really give us a boring fight. So definitely not an exciting challenge, but, uh, more than happy to take that, that up That's with you, cool. Pete. Sweet. All right, cool. Moving on, we go to the 145 pound weight class where we see Jared the flash Gordon take on the Colombian warrior, Danny Chavez, Jared Gordon, you know, kind of looks to be on the decline of his career, even though he's coming off that decision win over Chris Fishgold. I don't know if Fishgold's that UFC caliber. Uh, Gordon here, he opened as the minus 180 favorite, but and will more than likely look to establish that ground game, trying to, like, take away from Chavez's power early. Um, I I think on paper, Jared Gordon should win this fight um, by utilizing his grappling. But after watching tape study, these two fighters move at different speeds. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the eye test tells me that Chavez will absolutely murder him. And um, after watching that TJ Brown fight, you know, he opened it up with a spinning back kick that uh, looked legit. You know, it looked like he had been throwing that his entire life. And then, you know, I also noticed that he had some killer, killer leg kicks and is smart enough to switch up his leg kicks to a head kick um, and masks it really well. And he was able to actually get a, a TKO victory with a head kick head kick against uh, probably <laughs> a name that I would choose for pornography, uh, some pipe Vargas. <laughs> I'd never heard of a name like that, but that would be my poor name right there. Um, he's a uh, chavez he keeps his hands low so that's kind of similar to wineland but he has a completely different arsenal of attacks he's able to mix it up um and and really keep you guessing on the feet he was tested some in that tj brown fight mm-hmm. um i just question whether or not tj brown is the is the same caliber of wrestler as jared gordon
0: yeah man i'm right there with you uh, I, i'd uh... We saw him tested against a very good wrestler in TJ Brown, and that's what Jared Gordon has, has got to come in here and try to implement if he wants to have any success in this fight. Gordon yeah. is staying at 145 for this one after that successful outing. Um, in Fight Island without his corner, if you remember, that's the one where Paul Felder jumped off the uh, broadcast booth and went and changed clothes and cornered him last minute. Wow. So a lot of you know unknowns and question marks for Gordon into that bout, and he, you know he looked good against Fish Gold but fishgold is um is one of those europeans man you know wales fighters they don't really have that ground game um that some of the uh you know, other fighters have we've seen gordon also make the move over to sanford mma um you know which like we said talked about a lot of times has had a lot of success as of late this fight um much much closer than these odds opened up at jared gordon is not the minus 180 favorite here for me and Gordon's just a hard guy for me to ever bet any kind of money on. He doesn't seem like he uh, wants to work for my money, but at an opening out of minus 180, I do understand if you want to keep the he's a little honest with a small bet here. He, um, he's much more experienced in the UFC. And I feel like he has to make this fight boring, probably lay in Chavez's guard and do a lot of grappling. But I'm curious to see if that cardio is even going to hold up. If he does have to do a lot of grappling um, on Chavez's side, Uh, man, I want to bet him, but I don't. There's not a lot of tape study out there for you to see on him outside that TJ Brown fight, maybe another fight or so, but the public seems to like him. He opened up as another underdog and the public has went in and steamed him. I saw a lot of people on him on that TJ Brown fight as well. He trains out of MMA masters with a couple other guys on this card. He showed great takedown defense in that fight and a good gas tank. I think those leg kicks of his are going to cause Jared Gordon a ton of issues come Saturday night. This is a guy that we're finally seeing fight consistently. Um, Man, I think Danny Chavez is the side to bet here. But um, without, you know, a ton of tape study and stuff, I don't know if I can pull the trigger.
1: Yeah, if I could have gotten Chavez at the plus 155 that he opened up at, I definitely would have been laying on that. Um, As I look at it right now, though, Chavez inside the distance is plus 210. And uh, we've seen Gordon be tested plenty of times in his career. His, uh, actually, his last three losses are all TKO losses. Yeah. Um, so after watching Chavez's tape and um, knowing the power that he holds, uh, Chavez inside the distance at plus 200 is really looking tasty to me. I'll probably end up playing that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a line that we should look at playing, man. I don't, uh, I don't really see Jared Gordon being able to make the three rounds with Chavez either. Our prelim main event of the night is Andre Arlovsky, who's 30-19, and taking on Tom Aspinall, who and is 9-2. We've already released a bet via Twitter for you guys, parlaying Aspinall with someone later on in the card. Um, And it was actually Arlovsky that ruined our heavyweight parlay before uh, in the fight with Tanner Bozer. But in my opinion, man, um, I I think Tanner Bozer might have should have won that fight, but it was more of a case of Bozer not really showing up rather than Arlovsky looking good in that fight. Arlovsky is the Roxanne Montefiore of males, of men's fighting, man. He's three and one in his last four and the UFC cannot find a way to get rid of this guy. They, they feed him to the wolves. And sometimes he, you know, he comes out on top. He has been an underdog in every fight, but one since 2015. And there for a while with Francis and Stipe and stuff, his durability was really in question, but he went back to the drawing board and, He's found a way to stretch these fights out, man, and really get him to the judge's scorecard where he's found a lot more success. He has good volume and he's got five times the professional experience of Tom Aspinall. But with that comes the age, man, of 42 years old. And when he does fight those power punchers, it doesn't normally end well. And Tom Aspinall at 27 years old brings a ton of speed and a ton of power to that division. One of my um you know favorite prospects in that division right now. He's got a hundred percent finish rate, trains there with um Darren Till. But this is the biggest step up for Tom Aspinall in his career to date. Um he has had a pretty easy UFC run with the ex middleweight and Jake Collier and the light heavyweight on short notice and Alan Bodeau. Um, you know, he's never seen we haven't really seen his gas tank tested and we've seen Arloski stretch these fights out. So I wouldn't be um you know, I wouldn't lie if I say I was a little nervous, but I'm not really, man. Because Tom Aspinall, I think, is the real deal. What about you?
1: Yeah, so Arlovsky, and his, and his last 15, he's five nine and one, but he's currently riding that two fight win streak. And he's just one of those guys, like you said, where everybody counts him out, and then he shows you what he's capable of, and kind of reminds you that at one point in time, he was that upper echelon of the division. He was the champ, right? Um, and at 42 years old. I gotta give it to him, and his last time out against Bowser, I remember when that fight started, and I think I texted you and was like, "Hey, he looks like he's in good shape." You know, yeah. um, I mean, he had abs, he had everything that uh, he had whenever he initially came into the UFC in 2014. I mean, dude's uh, dude looks good at 42 years old, and it is the weight class of dinosaurs. So, um, you know, the age isn't isn't too much of a concern for me right now in Arlovski's career. I really boil it down to skill level. I think Aspinall. Man, after watching his striking, knowing his grappling credentials, it's really easy for me to jump on this hype train, man. You know, we, um, he, he's finished eight of his nine wins by first-round KO, which is always concerning, like you said, especially against a guy in Arlovsky who's kind of made his career in those later rounds. But Aspinall, I think, will have some similar uh, success to Rosenstruik, um, Francis Ngannou, you know, those guys who are able to catch him early. Just because Arlovsky kind of – uh, does take time to get his uh, his striking range figured out. Um, one one thing I, I do hope Aspinall can overcome is in that Tanner-Boser fight, it kind of looked like Tanner-Boser was just deer in the headlights, uh, kind of caught um, looking at Arlovsky. Arlovsky does something really well. He's willing to stay in the pocket and doesn't really bite on feints. And I think that was something that Tanner-Boser was really looking to capitalize on, but just couldn't get anything out of Arlovsky. So with Aspinall, I really hope that he just um, commits to his strikes early, um, which I don't think he's, ha- he's going to have a problem with and hasn't had a problem with it at any time in his career up until this point. Um, and then also it makes me feel pretty good that we got to see a glimpse of Tom Aspinall's ground game in that Bodeau fight where he wound up in Mount and uh, just looked dominant. So from what we have seen from Aspinall, uh, one of my highest prospects –
0: Absolutely, man. We, have, we jumped on that train for sure, and I know we're all over Tom Aspinall. We got him in a parlay, and I, and I know we've even talked about playing that TKO. We think he's going to get it done pretty easily.
1: And you got to imagine that Arlovsky is going to be okay with keeping this on the feet. So with Aspinall, like you said, training with Darren Till and Tyson Fury, i got to imagine that they've formulated a game plan that could really uh, cause problems for Arlovsky here.
0: Absolutely, man.
1: Moving on to the middleweight division, we have the Russian sniper and Mavov, who's nine and two, taking on Phil Megatron Hawes, who's nine and two himself. Um, and Mavov, it was comforting to see in his last time out against Jordan Williams. Whenever their clash of heads happen, and Mavov instinctively shoot for that takedown, mm-hmm. and even get it. You know, like it's one thing to uh, shoot instinctively, but to also have enough wherewithal to complete the takedown is a whole nother level for me. And so even though it was kind of a a fluke of a scenario, uh, the way Imavov kind of bounced back from that really made me happy, Uh, really made me more confident in, in backing him. He... Also has like a pretty well-developed striking game. He doesn't just wing punches. He's good about keeping his eye on the target and delivering those good straight punches. And he has an insane counter right hand that once he finds that timing, it's really game over for you. And then moving on to Phil Hawes, um, you know, he's tried, he's tried a couple of times to get into the UFC first time out against uh, the Cuban missile crisis. Julian Marquez, I really paid for it and one of the most devastating KOs I've seen to date. Uh, and then in his, uh, Dana White contender series in his second time around you know he showed extremely hard leg kicks early on in that fight and I think that that's something that he'll probably look to do in this Imavov fight as well. Um, Phil Hawes he throws with 100% power. We didn't really get to see much of his game in his last time out against Jacob Malkoon. Um, It kind of seemed like he had Malcoon running from the very start. Malkoon was constantly worried about that power. It reminded me of uh, Kamzats and Ch- versus Gerald Mearshart, where from the opening bell, um,
0: yeah.
1: you could tell they were worried about the power. Um, Phil Hawes... He will also instinctively shoot for the takedown and go back to that wrestling base of his, but he just does not have the frame at 185 pounds to do that for longer than two minutes at a time. Um, he's always had a problem with gassing out and to date has not seen the third round in any fight of his. Um, so I do lean towards Imavov here. And if, I'm, if you're going to play Imavov at all, I would recommend playing him inside the distance, strictly uh, basing that off of Haw's cardio issues.
0: Yeah, man, this is a good fight here, and it's another one, um, you know, it was rescheduled from a couple weeks ago, and I, I think it was because Phil Hall had a little bit of weight issues making that 185-pound cut. Amovov, we're just not getting the same uh, odds around this time. I think you could got him around a plus 140, plus 150 last time, and it's more of a pick right now. Amavov is on that six-fight win streak coming off the debut win against Jordan Williams where, like you said, showed great fight IQ. That was a very high paced fight too as well, and he showed great cardio in that. He trains out of the MMA factory there in France with guys like Cyril Gain and Cyril Gain's actually in camp right now for Rosenstroik. So you gotta think that he's getting really good looks right now and at only twenty-four years old. He shows very promising things. I give him the advantage on the feet. Um I wouldn't say the wrestling advantage on the mat, but he is he's gonna be able to hold his own there without a doubt. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to show some t- you know a little bit of tall man defense and let Phil come over the top with that big right hand feels extremely dangerous in round one but it's it's almost like a round one or bus kind of situation because he carries so much weight and he uses so much power in all his movements that he you know he just doesn't have the gas tank for it halls is another guy that I don't really think likes getting hit in my opinion he reminds me of the Rodolfo Vieira man you know like you mm-hmm. said doesn't like getting hit and also really doesn't have the cardio after you know making that massive weight cut. But I will say, you know, Phil Hall is, like you said, multiple tries to get in the UFC, and that's because the UFC really wants this guy in the UFC. And looking at him, why wouldn't you, you know? Mm -hmm. He had that in his fourth pro fight, he's fighting uh, Andrew Sanchez in the Ultimate Fighter House. Then he gets the Julian Marquez uh, Contender Series shot, coming off a loss. Then he gets another contender series shot and easily the easiest uh, debut opponent to date in Malcolm. The UFC really, really likes this guy and they really want him to, you know, to, to have a good time in the UFC. What I do like about Phil Hall is I will say, man, he's riding a five fight win streak and it's been the move to Sanford MMA. That's really done this for this guy. He used to be there at Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I said it on the first time we broke this fight down Jackson Winklejohn, the exact opposite place where this guy should have been. He is not a long rangey cardio kickboxer, man. He's the exact opposite, and I think now he's made the move to to Sanford MMA and really found his groove. It's all about that cardio, man. I really think it's halls early, a Mavov late. I think I really do like to play there on a Mavov inside the distance, and I know that we have parlayed this fight not going the distance um, with Emmers earlier in the card there to get relatively even money on that.
1: Yeah, this has got to be second to the Nate Landwehr-Rosa fight as far as my list of excitement.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a hell of a fight and a good one to kick off the main card. 100%. Our next fight on the main card is in our heavyweight division where we have Alexei Olenek who is 59-14-1 taking on Chris Dalkas who is 10-3. It's a 75th professional fight for Alexei Olenek and I think he's got over 40 submission wins there. This fight does resemble Arlovski and Aspinall a little bit, man. Where I think the UFC is is setting up the you know the new prospect here to get a win and you know over a top you know a top rated heavyweight there that can propel his career forward. Part of me wants to hedge any bet I have with Chris Dawkins with the prop bet of the Alexei sub because he's done it so many times. Uh, that's about the only thing he's really good at at this point in his career is dragging you down to the mat and getting a submission. He's got an unreal squeeze. But he is getting old, man. He's really slow on the feet. The grappling is starting to wear him out. And he's been finished in his last four losses. So that durability is really starting to fade. In the blue corner, man, is Chris Dawkins, who is the older brother of the middleweight Kyle Dawkins. And Chris kind of got his call to the UFC, you know, during the pandemic where Dana needed some heavyweights, where he matched him up in first fight of the night with Parker Porter, you know, and again, I think first or second fight of the night with Nascimento again. So, Looked great in both of those. He's got the round one finish. And what we've seen in Chris dalkas is unreal speed and footwork. He comes in about the 225 range, a lot lighter. And he's able to just outwork these guys on the feet. This is a big step up for Chris Dawkus, though. And it's a big step down for Olenek. How do you see this one going?
1: Yeah, so Dawkus, this is easily his biggest test to date. Um, he is extremely fast. And it is kind of worrisome that he only comes in around that 225 mark. Um, I know officially I, I looked on his Instagram. He officially got his black belt in August of last year, although I doubt he wants to use that at all in this right. scenario. Um, it is nice to know that he at least has the uh, tools on the ground to uh, be defensively sound in the submission game where we saw Linick Olenek um, in his fight against Derek Lewis have somebody who, in my opinion, has some of the worst ground game in the in the heavyweight division. And Alexio Linick had him in every position he could want to have him in and still couldn't get the finish. Uh, I think you you touched on Alexio Linick being just about as experienced as you could possibly want before it starts to be a bad thing. Um 46 submission wins, and it really is his only path to victory. He is known as the Boa constrictor for a reason. Um definitely has nothing to do with this striking. You know, he wings super slow overhand. Uh, punches. Um, technically, he did outstrike Alistair Overeem more than doubled Alistair Overeem's output in their fight, uh, but ended up getting finished on the feet. I think in this fight, he really has to worry about Doukas early, and I think Doukas's footwork and and hand speed will be the difference in this fight. Um, I I plan on personally playing Doukas uh, first round KO or just Doukas TKO, uh, pretty heavy. He's got a good four punch combo that is his go-to where he's throws a couple of jabs followed by a straight and then a left hook mm-hmm. um and I could really see him breaking the guard of Alexio Linick with those first three punches and landing the left hook to finish him off
0: yeah man I noticed the left hook in his combinations as well it's one of his main weapons um I, I do think we've already talked about it there's going to be a play on a Chris Dalkus by TKO going to be released later on in the week but uh I think I did talk you into a little hedge with the Alexei sub just in case it were to happen because um, I know he's got that black belt, but um, you know, Alexei Olenek is a different type of black belt.
1: One of those guys you can never count out. So it, it sucks to say, but yeah, we're going to hedge a little bit on Linux.
0: Absolutely, man.
1: Yeah. Moving on to the 145 pound division. We have Derek Minner who's 25 and 11 taking on Boston strong Charles Rosa, who's 13 and four. Derek Minner has one of the shadiest records I've ever seen mm-hmm. uh, since starting his professional career in 2012. He's only had one year that didn't have a loss on it. Um, in his last bout against TJ Laramie, that was easily his biggest win of his career. Um, and to be fair, I, I don't mean to undermine Derek Minner's accomplishments up until this point, but he is an under a one rounder bus fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has twenty of his fir- of his twenty five wins coming in the first round, and um, has only seen in his thirty six fight career the judges three times, which is why you see this fight uh, set at one and a half pa- one and a half rounds, even though it's a hundred and forty five pound fight. Mm-hmm. And then with Charles Rosa, you know he has eight wins by submission himself, and I do think that this will be. You know, if Charles Rosa can outlast Derek Minner's first round submission attempts, that this will be all Charles Rosa. That being said, you know Derek Minner, he's made that living on the on the first round submission, and I really do like the odds of him submitting somebody in the first round at plus money against anybody. I know right now it sits at plus three fifty five, and just knowing what Minner is capable of, it is something that you that you would look to play. Um, that being said, Rosa has shown his submission defense, especially in a even better grappler in Bryce Mitchell, uh, going all three rounds with him and really being in some pretty bad spots but able to work his way out of them. I think Charles Rosa um, will look to keep this standing uh, and kind of wear out Minner. Minner's going to force he's gonna force the uh the fight to rosa and force him to engage and i think that's where rosa might have to uh deal with some early submission attempts but eventually we'll we'll win this fight
0: yeah man it's uh it's a fight that's not getting a bunch of attention but it is on the main card for a reason this one's gonna be a fun one and it's gonna have some awesome grappling exchanges in it which uh not everyone appreciates but i know we will there man um, they both are submission artists and, and they're both excellent at catching these submissions um, in transition and a lot of the scrambles. Um, but like you said, I think Rose is going to have a much easier time with Miner here um, than he did with people like Bryce Mitchell. He does train out of a good camp and American top team, and he's going to have the advantage on the feet here. He had that big layoff after the Shane Burgos fight, but he's came back and he's two in one sense with that loss being to Bryce Mitchell where he showed tremendous submission defense there. I do lean to him the most definitely have the cardio advantage as well, but he's going to have a tough round one to get out of. Derek Minory is pretty much like you said, man, live or die by the sub. Um, and he doesn't really have a gas tank to go the three rounds. I I don't normally do this, but I I, you know, I almost see the jujitsu canceling out in this one. Um, I know the over two and a half is plus money and Again, not something I typically do, but I'm looking at it a little bit, man. Um, You know, you talked about him seeing what the judges scorecard only three times in 36 fights. It's very concerning and could be something that deters me from planning over two and a half. But Charles Rosa is good at stretching a fight out, um, and he doesn't really have the finishing ability. But Derek Minner is – I don't know if he necessarily gives up, but man, when that cardio goes, he gets put in really dangerous positions that just about any fighter is going to get the uh, the finish there. It's a tough fight to call because I think both guys are going to be able to, uh, both guys are going to be in positions that, uh, you know, give the other the chance to snatch up a sub. I'm probably going to stay off it, um, but I do know, and I understand with, you know, the statistically speaking of these guys' records, if you want to play the under two and a half, I absolutely understand there.
1: Yeah, and, you know, Derek Minner, what sucks about backing him is he can even have the fight going his way, like we saw in the Grant Dawson fight, where I believe he had his back, or at least he he looked good until the until the second round, where he just completely gassed and uh, gave up the submission. That's Derek, it, you know, it's he lives or dies by that submission. I don't know if we've talked about it, but he's been submitted in eight of his 11 losses, mm-hmm. um, so I really do expect Rosa to to have his way with him after that initial burst of of energy that Minner brings into the octagon, um, but like you said, Rosa's not necessarily known for being a finisher by any means. So, dragging it out, uh, I understand. I understand where you're coming from if you're on the Rosa side that this fight would go longer than expected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at, at featherweights, I think you said the best line for not going the distance is almost uh, you know minus two hundred. So it is. Mm-hmm almost parlayable at this point hard to hard to bet that straight
1: yeah 100 percent.
0: our co-main event of the evening is Ketlin vieira who was 11 and 1 taking on yana kunitskaya who's 13 and 5 this line hasn't really moved much since its opening and it's quite surprising to me considering how profitable women's underdogs were in 2021 or 2020 my apologies um, but also don't really know why this is the co-main event. Um, you know, in terms of divisional rankings, they are a little you know high up there, but not an exciting co-main event by no no means. Vera is eleven and one with the lone uh, loss being the TKO to Aldana, which was a KO you don't really see in a lot of female fights, man. Um, these odds, I would say they're probably a bit wide. I don't think Kaitlyn Vera is the three to one favorite. She is the bigger, stronger, more athletic of the two. She's got a jujitsu black belt. And on the other side is Yana Kuniskaya, you know, the longtime partner of Tiago Santos, trains have American top team. She debuted against Cyborg, man. She's she's fought pretty good competition. And those fights, she, she just does what she needs to do to win, basically. She puts the girls up against the fence and, and takes their weapons away. She doesn't really impress me. And, and tape study is hard to get through watching for her. I do lean Caitlyn Vieira here. Um, I do like her at the decision at minus 120. I think there's a ton of um, a ton of value on that. Reason why, um, she's only have one UFC finish, and it's over Sarah McMahon, who tends to gas after using all that grappling. But the over two and a half hit more in the women's 135-pound division than it did in any uh, other weight class in 2020. I think there's a lot of a lot of um, you know value on uh, Vera by decision at minus 120. Other than Cyborg and Aspen Lad, who both are heavy hitters, you don't really see Yana being finished that much.
1: Yeah, Yana's not one to make a fight pretty. Uh, yeah. If she's getting the win, like you said, it's more of one. It's one of those grinding type uh, victories, and you know her strength should not be underestimated in the octagon. And we saw in her time in Invicta, her utilized that clinch position a lot. And even in her debut against Cyborg, she actually controlled her up against the cage for a little over two minutes. And that Cyborg that we're talking about, you know, even though Cyborg isn't in the UFC anymore in the limited time that she was, it was dominant from start to finish. And uh, Yana was able to push her up against the cage, had the positional advantage over her for, like I said, a little over two minutes. Um, and that's something that we saw her doing in her last fight against Soli Aranko as well, just forcing her up against the cage, making her work, um, you know, not, not making it a pretty fight. Caitlin Vieira, though, you know, to quote DC, she's big for the weight class. She's very aggressive and she's very powerful. And that can be a problem for any girl in that weight. they in the division. Um, you know, Yana, Caitlin Vieira is a single loss being to Irene Aldana. And Yana Kunitskaya, she doesn't have the same height advantage that Aldana did, but she does have the same length that, uh, that Aldana did. And if Kunitskaya can stay off her back foot and not fall to the pressure that Vieira is going to put on her, I could see uh, Kunitskaya winning the exchanges on the feet. And then if she chooses when to engage and can force uh, Vieira up against the cage, I could see her making this a little bit dirtier than what the odds makers are telling us it should be. Um, Vieira and that Aldana fight, it was the only one of her, it was the only UFC fight that she's had where she didn't get a takedown on her opponent and it cost her. So I can't imagine her wanting to get out here and try and make it a stand up war with Kunitskaya. I lean towards Vieira, although I, I would not be playing that type of price tag for uh, for any girl fight, for that matter. Yeah,
0: me neither, man. I do see her parlayed all over the place when I'm looking through MMA Twitter and stuff, and with the reputation that, that 2020 had with the female underdogs, it's uh, not something I'm willing to put in there either, man.
1: We've learned our lesson betting on all these girl fights – or betting on a, a singular girl to win a fight, so – um yeah, although it does seem like on on our bet MMA tips, almost everybody who's uh, everybody's going with Ketlin. I, I think that we're just going to lay off here.
0: Absolutely, man.
1: Our main event of the evening is in the men's heavyweight division, where we see Curtis Razor Blades, who's fourteen and two, take on the Black Beast Derek Lewis, who's twenty four and seven. You know, if you've heard one breakdown of this fight, you've heard them all. Uh, it seems like everybody knows what Curtis, game pla- Curtis Blades' game plan is, and even Curtis does. Um, you know, he averages seven takedowns per 15 minutes, and I I don't think that he's going to change up that game plan at all in this fight. Um, Derek Lewis has about a fifty percent takedown defense, and so I'm fairly positive Blades is going to be able to take him down. It's just a question of how many times can Lewis get back to his feet, and can Curtis Blades do enough damage between him getting back to his feet and Blades getting? Or, or, it can. You know, how many times will Lewis be able to get to his feet one? And then in that time that he's on his feet, can he deliver enough damage to Curtis Blades before that next takedown attempt comes? Because that's what Curtis Blades is going to do, as we saw in the Volkov fight, just spam takedowns over and over and over again. And even though uh, we did see Blades' cardio um, hold up over the five rounds, it did not look pretty towards the end of those rounds. Interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's just from Volkov making him work every single time for that takedown. And that's something that we've seen Derek Lewis, although I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the way Derek Lewis um, fights just because I think that he accepts that back position and will just hang out on the, on his back and bottom position until he decides to use that fuck you strength and get up and, um, it 's really, really frustrating backing somebody like Derek Lewis who will take the time off in between rounds or in in rounds. Um, I give blades the cardio advantage here, but that 's not to say that Lewis has bad cardio you know we 've seen him go a couple of times to the judges, and for what it 's worth he he maintains the power throughout his uh, throughout the fight and that 's another one where we saw. Uh, Volkov, you know, catch catch that that huge overhand right by Derek Lewis in the closing seconds of the third round. Lewis brings that power at every point in time.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, like you said, if you've heard him one, you've heard them all. We know what Blades is going to do out here. This fight was originally scheduled for December, and Blades had to pull from COVID. I'm glad they kept it together, and uh, I'm sure Curtis Blades is probably pretty happy they kept this one together for him as well. Blades does finish off the heavyweight parlay we've already uh, released to the public there on Twitter. Um, and, man, training out of team elevation, if you have, to, or if you are a heavyweight and you have the grappling approach that Curtis Blades has, there's no better camp for you to be at, you know. Um, he has unbelievable wrestling. It is without a doubt the best in the division, and he has a nasty double leg. What you've seen Curtis Blades develop now is work on the bottom man. He's great at getting the sub at the ground and pound. The elbows that he landed on Shamil, on um, Alistair Overeem and he's really starting to come into his MMA game. I compared it to this fight a little bit to the Justin Willis fight that we saw in Nashville, where you know it's a it's a heavy boxer uh, with heavy power that's probably just going to get ragdolled. But you give Curtis Blades Justin Willis now, and he finishes him. He's much more experience and stuff on you know the mma aspect so when he gets down there on the mat and how to you know how to land his ground and pound he doesn't like when the punishments come in his way curtis blades does not like to get hit he does shell up and the lone two losses are to francis and who is about to fight for a belt so if he wins and it's hard to make that fight a third time when francis has beat you you know in round one both previous times on Derek lewis man it's hard to believe that he has won one knockout away from tying Vitor Belfort for, for most all-time knockouts in the UFC, he is the heavyweight record holder, and it's it's a little crazy because uh, you just you don't you know he's as one-dimensional as it gets, and he the way he fights you don't think that he would be the knockout leader for the heavyweight division um, because for the most part he kind of has to battle back in a lot of his fights. He has a ton of heart, don't get me wrong, but in Volkov, Travis Brown, multiple ones, you know he. he takes a beating before he lands some of those big punches, and man, Curtis Blades is really going to put it on this guy. He's going to he's going to just absolutely um, expose Derek Lewis's ground game, his gas tank. Lewis was asking for this fight, saying he's going to take Curtis Blades down. He's crazy, man. Um, and one thing, the last thing I want to say, you know, I told you earlier, Curtis Blades released that statement about. Saying his uh, win bonus is 100k and that people are crazy if they think he's gonna come out here and have a standing fight with someone like Derek Lewis. I love hearing that when you got your money on someone like Curtis Blades. Um, I think he comes out here and makes it look easy and I'd love to parlay that under four and a half somewhere throughout the card.
1: I really do question whether or not Derek Lewis is even that upper echelon at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. you know I, I dog on him a lot and I will admit that he's earned his position right now. I just don't think that he has the actual technique or skill that a lot of these other MMA fighters who are in the heavyweight division, especially these up-and-comers in the heavyweight division like Cyril Gaon and Tom Aspinall, who have rounded out their games. Mm -hmm. Um, Derek Lewis isn't even close to that. We take a look at his last five fights: loses to DC, loses to JDS, Blagoy Ivanov, split decision. You know how I feel about that. that. What about our Er one in Houston? Yeah, Er Latifi, split decision. We got to see that one in Houston. And we know he lost that one. Where was he at? Alexei Olinick had him in some awful had him where he wanted him, where where I thought Alexei O'Linick would win.
0: You can't scarf choke choke Derek Lewis.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean it just it just works out for him that he's won these last five, but he could easily be on a five fight losing streak right now. And he's facing somebody in Curtis Blades, who in my opinion is the dark horse of the division, the last guy I want John Jones to be fighting. Um, man, Curtis Blades. Topping out that one two sixty five pound scale is a fucking problem for anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, like you said, as long as he sticks to his game plan, he's a he's an absolute killer. And I think at this point, you know, it's not a question of if Blades will win, but how can we find value gambling on him to win? You know, right. I know we've talked to a, quite a few people. One person in particular, Brandon Phillips, who on Twitter has been really into the Curtis Blades by submission sitting at plus four hundred. That sounds good. That sounds really good. It, the only thing that that throws me off of it is Derek Lewis has shown to for whatever reason be really hard to submit. you know he's just thick everywhere and is one of the biggest dudes in the division. so it's uh I think i'm I'm as confident as any fight I've ever been. I'm picking Curtis blades here, but uh Derek Lewis, it's kind of funny that it is you know, a guy who has the win over Francis Ngannou, who's beaten Blades twice. Right. <laughs> uh, Derek Lewis has the fighting style that Curtis Blades has fallen uh, victim Vicky. to, yeah. yeah, a couple of times now. So um, I'm glad I get to see it. I think I'm finally going to be able to see Derek Lewis just get shat on and kind of put him in his place where I think he he should be in the heavyweight division, where which is that uh, 10 to 15 range.
0: Absolutely, man. And I'm just as confident on Curtis Blades. And that's why our parlay with Aspinall is a three-unit parlay. Very, very confident on these two heavyweights to get it done on Saturday. I love it. I love it. And Man, if there is a fight throughout this entire 15-fight card that stands out to you, what's one of those for you?
1: It's got to be the Nasruddin and Mava versus Phil Hawes fight. Uh, I think at 285ers who are willing to throw down, we're not going to see the judges in that fight, which is why we're taking or putting the fight doesn't go to decision in some of our parlays this week.
0: Man, that's a good one. For me, it's going to go with Julian Erosa and Nate Landwehr, two of the most exciting guys on the roster. Um, Erosa live or die goes out on a shield, man, and you know Landwehr is never in a never in a uh, a boring fight. was going to be fireworks and i think we're actually planning on playing under there so expect some violence
1: and it's just Uh, nice to be able to back a local boy you know
0: absolutely man but for me if i look through all 30 fighters here one that stands out to me is the hype train that we jumped on a couple fights ago and tom aspinall man really high on this guy such good hands jiu jitsu black belt to fall back on and trains with some good guys over there in team Kaboon in liverpool with uh with tyson um or not? Yeah, with Tyson with, Fury. Yeah, and, with Tyson Fury. Um, you know, Mike Grundy, Darren Till, all of them. You know, so uh, and he's in a position where um, you know I think he's going to cause Andre some problems and uh, you know really get a number next to his name come the next fight.
1: Yeah. So for this one, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I've got two guys here, uh, both of which I think are going to who I'm looking to get a mm-hmm. uh, win inside the distance this weekend. My first one is Jamal Emmers who's taking on Chaz Skelly. Yeah. I think that explosive striking is going to be a little bit too much for Chaz coming off that year-and-a-half layoff, and uh, we get some really good money betting on Emmers inside the distance. And then Chris Daukus, we're planning on playing him relatively heavy for that, uh, for that KO. I think Alexio Lennox just uh, he moves in slow motion at this point in his career, and Daukus is one of the lighter, faster heavyweights in the division. I could really see him piecing him up early.
0: Yes, man. I think we got some great reads this week. Looking to make it three profitable events in a row. We'll have these bets released for you later this week. And if you're still here with us, do us a favor, subscribe to the channel, like the video. That helps us out. And let's make some money on Saturday.
1: Yes, sir. Peace.